Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Job chapter 6, and we'll be looking at uh, chapters 6, 7, and 8, and dealing with the issue, is God unjust because of our sufferings? You know, one of the biggest uh, struggles I think that people have is trying to understand God's involvement in the bad things that happen in our lives. People struggle like this. For example, a kind of a well-known example is with the rabbi Harold Kushner. When his young son by the name of Aaron came down with a very incurable genetic disease called progeria. And progeria is a disease that causes very rapid aging. Aaron, his son, uh, died as an old man when he was 14 years old because of the disease that caused him to age and get older and older. Till he got so old, he just he died basically of old age. But he was only 14 years old. So how do you explain God's role in that? A few years later, Rabbi Kushner wrote a book dedicated to his son with the title, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now we could discuss the title in and of itself, but what he's trying to, to wrestle with is really kind of the issue of theodicy. The issue of attempting to understand the character of God in light of the problem of evil in the world. Rabbi Kushner came to the conclusion that God was a good God, but God was not all-powerful, so that He cannot prevent evil from taking place. This conclusion is that God is good, but God is limited. God is finite. He does the best He can to prevent evil, but He doesn't have the power or the ability to stop it. So the best that God can do is, in the midst of our tragedies is to draw near to us and comfort us. Rabbi Kushner came to the conclusion that sometimes that's all God can do because He's not perfect. He's not omnipotent. And so our response to God is we must learn to love God and forgive God because of His limitations. People who are desperate for answers in times of suffering often turn to unbiblical solutions. The Scriptures have answers, but when you turn away from the light of Scripture, then you end up having to create a God that seems to make sense to you rather than believing and worshiping the God of Scripture as He has revealed Himself. Others go in different directions when suffering comes their way. 
they will admit that, okay, God is all-powerful, but maybe God is not all-good. Or the way we may sometimes understand it is that God is not fair with me. God is unjust. God is not dealing with me right. So we accuse God of being unjust. Many may not actually say this out loud, but we think it in our hearts when we're suffering and we inwardly, silently think that God is mistreating us. God has wronged us. And this seems to be the dark hole that Job is now backing himself up into. That because of the way God is dealing with me, God is not dealing with me right. God is unjust. And so what we're going to see as we're working through these chapters this morning is the agony of his soul trying to make sense of the suffering that he's enduring. But because of his limited understanding of the ways of God, he's going to find himself backing into this position that God must be unjust. Let's uh, see where this takes him in our section this morning. Job chapter 6. Job begins to respond to Eliphaz, whose uh, sermon or message to Job we saw last week. And basically, Job is stunned by what Eliphaz said to him. Eliphaz was no comfort to Job by any means. He basically told Job, if you'll remember from our study last week, that Job, you must have sinned to receive such sufferings from God. In fact, Job, God gave me a revelation about this, a spirit who told me these things, and it sure seems to fit you like a glove. Eliphaz went on and accused Job of basically being a fool and yet encouraged him that if he would seek after God and receive God's rebuke and not despise God's discipline, that things would turn out well. So that was kind of the counsel of Eliphaz to Job. Job basically ignored it because for the most part it didn't even apply to him because we know of his circumstances. But he continues his complaint. So in Job chapter 6, Job is going to basically answer his, his friends. Eliphaz is speaking kind of on behalf of all three of his friends here. Then in chapter 7, Job will directly address God. So let's kind of walk through this. We find in the first 13 verses of Job chapter 6 that Job basically defends his own grief. Let's start in verse 1. Then Job answered, Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So what Job is bursting out in, in this uh, initial response to Eliphaz 
is Eliphaz, you, you don't understand. You're accusing me of rash, angry words. And yes, they have been rash. But the but if you put my, my sufferings in a scale with my calamities, my sufferings on this side, the calamities, or, or I should say my grief, my, my lament on this side, and all the calamities of bad things that have happened to me on this side, they would be so heavy that my lament, my rash words, my expressions of grief would be clearly understandable. So he justifies his grief if you could only weigh them against the depth of the misery and the suffering that he's had to endure. That's kind of the first thing he says. Notice he says that if you did that, my calamities would be heavier, verse 3, than the sand of the seas. So it would be, my calamities are immeasurable. So don't pick on me because of my rash words of expressing my grief. They're more than justified in a lot of the horrendous suffering I've had to endure. That's kind of his first point. And then notice in verse 4, he's basically saying, God is warring against me. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. They're poison-tipped arrows, by the way, because he says they're poison my spirit drinks. God is shooting these poison-tipped arrows at me. He says the terrors of God are arrayed against me. So God is at war against me. Why has God become my enemy? What reasons is God attacking me? And, and in all of this, you can, you can begin to read between the lines that Job is starting to accuse God of being unjust. He's at war at me with me. He's shooting his arrows at me. Why? What's my sin? So he's beginning to back up into this dark cave of questioning God's justice. And then if you <clears throat> look at uh, basically verses 8 through 13, Job declares his innocence. Look at verse 8. Oh, that my request might come to pass and that God would grant my longing. Now, what was his longing in chapter 3? He wanted to die, you remember? Verse 9. Would that God were willing to crush me, that He would loose my hand and cut me off. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. I have not broken God's Word. God has attacked me. God has shot His arrows at me. And, I, and because of that, I wish I was dead. I wish I could die. But I'm innocent of some great sin worthy of such great suffering. So he's <clears throat> stating his, his innocence. And then in verses 14 down through verse 30, Job kind of turns specifically to his friends and he begins to rebuke them. Look at verse 14. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. 
so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish. Now what's a wadi? Well, that's up in the arid, mountainous, rocky region. And during the rainy season, you have these little creeks, these little streams that run down. But during the dry season, when you need water the most and you go there to find water, they are bone dry. And basically what Job is accusing his friends of being are like a, like a wadi. Again, you claim that you're going to bring me water. You claim you're going to bring me comfort. You, you claim you're going to come and, and encourage me. But I go to you and, and, and your words are bone dry. There's no water there at all. There's no refreshment for my soul at all. You're like a wadi. Your friendship is really like a mirage. You say that you're my friend. You, you say at a distance that you have water for me. But when I get there, it's dust and sand and cactus and hot winds. You're nothing. Your friendship is not true. And then drop all the way down to verse 24. He says to his friends, teach me and I will be silent. Show me how I, how I have erred. And so he's reaching out to his friends and saying, look, show me the sin that God has punished me for. I'm listening. Be honest with me. Tell me the truth. Tell me where I've sinned. Don't beat around the bush. Point it out. And then if you drop down to verse 28, Now please look at me and see if I lie to your face. Desist now. Let there be no injustice. Even desist. My righteousness is yet in it. Is there injustice on my tongue? Can, cannot my palate discern calamities? And here basically Job seems to just be telling his friends that, Look, I'm, I'm open to you telling me where I've gone wrong to bring all this calamity upon me. But he pleads with his friends to believe that he's telling them the truth. I have not sinned. I have not broken God's holy words, as he said earlier. So Delich, one of the uh, commentators, kind of summed up this part. And he said, Job expected his friends to gently fan his faintly burning wick that's ready to expire. And he expects his friends to come up and gently blow on that wick to try to invigorate it, trying to help it burn a little brighter. But instead, their words are like a cold, violent breath calculated to extinguish the flame entirely. You learn a lot of principles about friendship in here. Kind of words that can help and the words that don't always help. And so he's just, he's just now venting and kind of responding to the tenor of Eliphaz's sermon to him. And he responds against them uh, harshly. In chapter 7, now Job turns to the Lord and appeals to God. 
So in the first 10 verses, Job kind of rehearses his agonizing condition. In chapter 7, look at verse 3. So am I allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me? When I lie down, I say, when I arise, when shall I arise? But the night continues and I am continually tossing until dawn. In other words, he can't sleep. It's, it's a restless, sleepless night. He can't ever get that, that good deep sleep that he, that he wants. And then in verse 5, he says, My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. And this is kind of a gross picture of just the, the nature of the boils that he was enduring in his life. Now, now the worms that he mentions here, I'm not sure they, he's, he's literally having worms crawling over him. Maybe so. But the worms could be a figurative way to describe all the whelps and the raised up parts of his skin. Now, the, 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 this, these boils that he have are, are crusting over, but then they're breaking again and oozing and running. And he's just, he's just complaining to God. And, and if I was there, I guarantee you, I'd, I'd be doing the same thing. In verse 6, he says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. He's hopeless. He says, My days, you've seen that weaver's shuttle that can be moved fairly quickly to help weave cloth and stuff together. And he says, My days are just flying by that fast. And I'm without hope of anything ever getting better. So he's just pouring out his heart. Verse 7, remember, he's talking to God, that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. So Job is just sunk down in this deep, dark depression, this, this anguish of soul because of his sufferings. And he's, he's convinced in his heart there's no sin to justify it. So God, what are you doing? He starts focusing the blame somehow on God. And maybe he hasn't been just. God is not just. In verses 11 through 21, Job's bitter complaint against God continues. Verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? And it's kind of like he's saying, God, am I so dangerous? Am I like a sea monster that you're putting me in jail and putting armed guard there? Is that the way you look at me? So again, he's just he's expressing... The, 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 by the way, just the poetry and just the variety of speech and analogies are just masterful in this book. Uh, it, it really is a, inspired by God, certainly, in so many ways. But let's uh, continue on. Verse 13. If I say, 
My bed will comfort me. My couch will ease my complaint. Then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. Talking about these nightmares. Verse 15. So that my soul would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pains. I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone. For my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every, every morning and, every, and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? So again, and I think you can see how desperate and difficult his struggle is that he's just crying out to God, God, just leave me alone. And when someone gets to that point, I mean, it's a desperate, sad situation. Job agrees that great sin deserves great suffering. He says, in effect, I have great suffering, God, but where is my great sin? So he's very boldly appealing to God in these things. If you look at uh, verse 20 and 21, says to God, Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. Why? Why? See, he's not, he doesn't understand. None of us would either if we were in his shoes at this point. Job feels mistreated by God. Later on in chapter 19, Job will say that God has wronged me. He's been unjust. He has wronged me. So it's only going to get it's only going downhill from here. Uh, but he's struggling in his soul with understanding why that suffering is coming to his life. You know, it's kind of interesting here. There's a there's a dual conflict that faith struggles with. On the one hand, we want to say to God, God, just leave me alone. Just stop messing with me. On the other hand, he can't stop crying out and drawing near to God in prayer. You see that struggle going on. God, just leave me alone, but Lord, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to keep drawing to you and crying out to you. That's just kind of the inner struggle that that true faith sometimes has. We're trying to make sense of the devastations in our life. Well, now comes Bildad, the second counselor in chapter 8. And Bildad, his, what he senses he's hearing from Job is that Job is challenging God's justice. And so that's where he's going to kind of move the conversation. So starting in verse, chapter 8 now, looking at uh, starting in verse 1, then Bildad, the Shuite, answered, How long will you say these things? 
and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. In other words, Job, you're just a big old windbag. Now, how's that for a good friend? Come up and counsel you. I mean, your heart's just all over the floor, and you're just being honest, crying out to God, and your friend comes up and says, man, you're just a windy bag. So he starts out, and he just kind of rebukes Job. The words of your mouth are, a, are just a windy, mighty wind. And then notice verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sin, and this is where Bildad becomes very cruel in his words. If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. So basically what he's saying to Job is he's seeing that Job is starting to accuse God of perverting justice. That's the inference of Job's complaints. And so he now begins to address them by challenging him in verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Well, of course not. But Job, that's what you're implying and then what he says in verse 4 just shows just how cruel and unthinking he was, which his comment no doubt struck a raw nerve with Job. Because that's the very thing he was always sensitive with with his children. That's why he offered sacrifices them after they had a, a birthday party and he feared that maybe they cursed God in their hearts. And Job was always offering sacrifices for his children to try to appease God in case that would happen. And yet Bildad comes out and says this like a stake in the heart. This really kind of shows the destructive power of the tongue which lives in your mouth, in my mouth. That sometimes when we could speak a word of comfort, a word of kindness. We just attack with daggers and swords. That's why the Proverbs say that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 12 says, There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. Another proverb says that a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like a scorching fire. So that out of our mouths, it's like a napalm. It's just like holding a big napalm shoot. And we, we pull the trigger, or however they do it, and outblast this napalm, this burning liquid fire that just incinerates people. And it comes out of our mouth. We treat our spouses that way. We treat our children that way. Sometimes we treat people at work that way. And sadly, even among friends, we can say things that are so destructive. And this is what Bill Dad is modeling for us. This is what not to do. But he just 
comes with these uh, words of death. The good thing, if there's any redeeming thing from this, is that at least he, he in verses 5 through 7, he changes his tone. And look at what he says. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. So what is he saying? Job, seek God. Confess your sin. Come clean with God and He'll restore you. That's basically the words that He's implying here. In verses 8 through 19, Bill Dad will now say that history confirms what I've been telling you, Job. So he says in verse 8, Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by our fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they, that is these past generations, not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? In other words, go back and look at history. History will show you that God blesses good people and God causes suffering to come upon bad people. That's just the way history is. So let history teach you now, there's a gazillion uh, examples where that doesn't take place, but they're, they're drawing on their understanding of history. And this is, this is kind of interesting because one of the purposes of the book of Job is to challenge the historical understanding of the doctrine of God and how he deals primarily with the principle of retribution with people. That was the historical status quo. That was, that was a theology accepted throughout history. And basically, Job is really undermining that. He's going to attack the foundation of that. This whole book eventually will do that. So there, there's a bit of an irony that Bildad is referring to history when really history is not a reliable guide, at least the way they understand history. That revisionist history of the, the way they're looking at it doesn't really fit. But then he goes on in verse uh, 11 through 19, and he, and he talks about how nature confirms this also. And this is an interesting illustration. Look at verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God and the hope of the godless will perish. So here's using an illustration. Now the papyri, of course, were famous for growing along the Nile River or other rivers like the Nile River. They, they grow in the water. They require a lot of water. And so what Bildad is pointing out in verse 11 is can a, can a papyrus grow up without a marsh, without water? And of course it can't. And he uses that as an illustration. That's, that's what describes... You, Job, and everybody else that forgets God. It's like you're a papyrus plant, but you're leaving the waters of God, and so you're just going to dry up and die and wilt and blow away. So he's using an illustration from nature to try to 
to uh, empower his logic with Job. And then finally in verses 20 through 22, he makes an application to Job in verse 20. He says, Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. And those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. So basically, Bildad closes out his speech by saying, Job, you've accused God of being unjust, but if you repent of your sin and pursue integrity, if you seek God and implore His compassion, if you seek to live a, a pure and an upright life and get rid of this, whatever that big sin is in your life, then God will restore you to joy and happiness. And not only that, He'll destroy your enemies' tents as well. So that's kind of how He closes out. So part of the, the hole that Job has backed into is he's beginning to think in his mind because he's convinced of his own innocence that he has not forsaken the Word of God, that, that he's, he's not violated it, that all of this suffering in his life must mean that God is unjust. That's what he's implying. So it raises the issue in your suffering and in my suffering, the whole issue, can God be unjust? And of course, no. God cannot be unjust. The Scriptures say, for example, in Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 33, 5, that God loves righteousness and justice. He cannot be unjust. His very nature is that He is a just and a holy and a righteous God. There's no way that He can be unjust with you. Justice can be defined as giving a person what is his or her due. Now think about that for a second. What is justice? It's giving a person what they're due. So for example, if a man steals a candy bar out of a store and he goes before the judge and the judge says, death penalty. It's unjust. If you have a murderer who deserves to die, and the judge lets him off relatively easy, that's unjust. God is always just. His justice will clearly be manifested on the last day when people stand before Him. God cannot be unjust. It's within His very nature to be a just and a holy God. But God is more than just. And this is what we need to keep in mind that God is also gracious and God is also merciful and many other things as well. And these play off of His justice at times. Grace and mercy from God are always voluntary. God is never obligated to show us mercy. 
Paul says in Romans 9, quoting from Exodus, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God owes nobody mercy. If He shows anybody mercy, He does it freely and voluntarily. But God is more than just just. Not everybody always gets what they what's due them because of God's mercy and His grace. Grace is receiving blessings from God that we don't deserve. And when God but when God shows mercy or when God shows grace, it doesn't make him unfair or unjust. And this is what Sproul says, I think is very insightful. He says mercy and grace are forms of non-justice, but they are not acts of injustice. So God can show mercy and God can show grace, but those are non-justice issues. But He's never unjust. In addition to God being gracious and merciful, God is also wise. He's sovereign. And He can bring sufferings into our life for a good and a gracious end. So even though Job is implying that God is unjust, that's totally inappropriate. But let's kind of draw this together when we talk about ourselves, that when the saints suffer, how should we think about it then? Well, several thoughts just kind of responding to some of Job and and his friends here that when believers suffer today, we always need to remember that even in our suffering, we're receiving better than we deserve. That's always the case. Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. We should never accuse God of being unjust with us. We should never say, God, that's, that's unfair. Lord, you have mistreated me. You have wronged me. You have not been just with me. Shouldn't, shouldn't go that way. Primarily because from the biblical position, we don't want God to be just, do we? Sometimes we suffer. We don't understand it. We say, well, God, you're unjust. But we always get better than we deserve because what do we deserve? If God was just with us, what would we get from God? If justice is getting what you deserve, we don't want God's justice. We want His mercy. We want His grace. Imagine, if you will, standing before a just God. The books are opened and every single sin you've ever committed throughout your entire life is exposed. Not a single sin goes unnoticed by the all-seeing, all-knowing mind and eye of God. Every sin we've committed in the darkness that no one else saw us do that we've hidden from everybody else, but God saw it. 
And every hidden sin is now exposed in the light. Every proud thought, every unkind word, every sinful action, God has now declared against us. God sees it all, He hears it all, and He hates it all. Because it is at its very core, sin is treason against His holy rule. The very essence of sin is it's a blatant attack against God and His holy law. It is rebellion of the, of the worst kind in trying to unseat God and put ourselves as the Lord of our life. That's sin. And all of your sin are brought in a moment before the gaze of a holy, just God. The law of God then speaks up. And it shouts, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. And then Christ, the holy judge, pronounces to you these words ringing in your ears, Depart from me, I never knew you. And God casts you down into the lake of fire, the bottomless pit, the furnace of fire, the place of outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for we are tormented by fire and brimstone forever and ever with no rest day or night, eternally separated from God forever. Can you even begin to imagine that? That, dear friends, is justice. That is what we deserve. And even in our deepest, most bitter suffering, we always get better than what we deserve as God's people. See, Job had forgotten about that or didn't understand it. So when he begins to compare his sufferings with what he really deserves, he, ha he looks at it wrongly. And he begins to accuse God of being unjust. No, we don't want God's justice. We want His mercy and His grace, which we can have freely in Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior. So whenever we as God's children are suffering, all we've got to think, you know, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of suffering. I have a lot of problems. I have a lot of pain, a lot of difficulties in my life but you know what by the grace of Jesus Christ I'm not in hell getting what I deserve and it's actually just a way to to compare your suffering with God's justice God is not unjust he has a purpose but he's never unjust the second thing I think is beneficial for us which certainly applies to Job is that we cannot expect to understand the ways of God. Did you remember how many times Job cried out, why, why, in this section? He's trying to understand, why, God? Why is this happening to me? Why me? Why this? Why now? And we say the same thing with our sufferings. Why are you bringing this into my life? 
Why, why to me? Why not other people? Why, why this and, and why now? And we struggle with the very same issues, don't we, sometimes? But puny, finite people of flesh like you and me cannot expect to understand the ways and the mind of an infinitely holy, good, wise, loving, sovereign God. That's why Isaiah, God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, ultimately, faith has to come to that position where, Lord, I don't understand, but I know you're not unjust. Praise God, that's part of your holy character. And I know your ways and your thoughts are infinitely beyond my ability to comprehend why you're bringing this into my life. But Lord, I'm going to trust you. When I don't understand, I'm going to trust you because your ways and thoughts are so far higher than mine, I can't comprehend them. In Proverbs 20, verse 24, we have the same, the same wisdom when it says, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? The reason why you can't understand your way is because God is guiding the, your steps. God has ordained your steps. And God has reasons and purposes that we just oftentimes don't have privy to. And so we have to trust. So one of the biggest things we need to realize is that when we're in times of suffering, God oftentimes will not answer the why questions. He'll, he'll call upon us to trust Him because He won't give us the answers oftentimes. And that's frustrating to us because we want to know why. But faith sometimes just has to bow the knee and trust. And then finally, just because we know the Scriptures teach this, that all suffering for God's people is purposeful. It always has a purpose in God's plan. And although that can be to accomplish many different things in our life, ultimately it's to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. We are predestined, brothers and sisters in Christ, to be conformed to the image of his son. And what does that mean, to be conformed to his image? Well, certainly his holy image, that we reflect the the godliness, the, the morality of, of our Lord. He was sinless, but we try to reflect His holy character. But it also involves being conformed to His image in terms of His lifestyle of the cross, the suffering of the cross before the glory of the crown. This is what Paul said earlier in Romans 8 when he said to the brethren, we are all heirs with Christ if we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. Part of the reason of your sufferings is to 
conform you to the image of Christ and His suffering. To be like Christ because He suffered. And since His physical body suffered, so must His spiritual body. There's a stage, a phase of suffering before we enter glory. But that's a way for us to kind of understand in some way why so many problems and afflictions and troubles and sufferings seem to come our way. God has predestined to conform us to the image of Christ. And part of that image is the suffering Christ and then the reigning Christ. But we're being conformed to his image of suffering now. That's why Paul spoke in Philippians 3 how he longed for the fellowship of his suffering. Now, was he a masochist? No. But he, he longed for the fellowship of his suffering, of, the, of Christ's suffering. And I think there, there are times when our suffering can be very beneficial to us spiritually. For example, have you ever had physical pain in your life and thought about the physical pain of Jesus on the cross? Have you ever had times when you're hurting physically and you begin to transfer that and think about how much greater Jesus suffered physically on the cross? And there's a sense in which you can your, your love for Him, your appreciation of His sacrifice can grow because we, we feel a little pain and then we begin to think, well, how much greater was the bodily pain of my Savior as He bore my sin and suffered the curse of God's law for, my, for me? And we're conformed to His image. We enter into the fellowship of His suffering when we can take our physical pain and experience it and make us think of Christ and His suffering for my sin. There's a fellowship of His suffering. That's part of the image of His Son that we are predestined to be conformed to. How about the mental anguish, the discouragement? Have you ever gotten really down? If you can transfer that and think, well, think of what my Lord endured on the cross for me when He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And you think, Oh Lord, what the, the discouragement, the despair that I'm facing isn't anything like what You experienced as You paid the penalty for my sins. See, there's a, there's a fellowship in His suffering that's sanctifying it makes our love for Christ grow all the more that He was willing to suffer the very dregs, the very depths of that kind of pain and suffering. And we just get a little bit of it. But it's designed to help us enter into the fellowship of that suffering. You see, it was the cross of Christ that enables God to be both just and the justifier of the sinner who has faith in Christ. When Christ bore our judgment on the cross, He did it that we might know His mercy, that we might know His love. And whenever God shows us mercy and grace, His justice is not being violated because His justice towards us was satisfied on the cross when Jesus died. So the little bits of suffering that we have in this life 
is to give us just a little bit of a taste of the depths of the burden and suffering that Jesus endured to save us from our sins, to satisfy the justice of God against our sin. And that should grow our love and adoration for what Jesus has done for us. So like Job, sometimes we are tempted to accuse God of being unfair with us, being unjust with us. Sometimes we're tempted like Rabbi Kushner to struggle in our sin and believe, well, God, you must be all good, but you know, maybe you just don't have the power. Maybe Satan rules the world and you can't stop him. And we come into a false view of God. And what we learn from this is that Job is struggling. We can understand and appreciate the depth of his struggles. But we need to learn from it. This is not the way that we come to understand God's ways. God's ways are mysterious. We know that God has another purpose in Job's sufferings. It's not because of his sin, but that ultimately God ordains sufferings in our life that we might come to know and experience and appreciate the infinite depth of his sufferings to satisfy God's justice so that we could know his mercy and know his grace. So when suffering comes, never accuse God of being unjust. If God was just with us, we would be in hell. But our sufferings are a means of God's grace to conform us more to his image. That's why your sufferings have meaning. Because Christ's sufferings have meaning. And because our sufferings are conforming us to his image, all of our sufferings have a redemptive meaning in the plan of God. May the Lord help comfort us with those thoughts and not find ourselves falling into that black gloom of Job where he's challenging the very justice of God. Thank God that we have his mercy and his grace through Jesus Christ. Christ is our only hope. It's His blood, His righteousness. That's our hope. Because God's justice has been satisfied by His blood. Well, may God help us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You, Lord, for the challenge of wrestling through these kind of struggling chapters of hearing a man whose heart is just wrenched because of his pain and his suffering, and he's trying to make sense of it all. And he doesn't have the revelation that we have. And so he's struggling and finding himself moving in a direction which is, which is not right. But Lord, suffering is difficult to explain. Suffering is difficult to endure. But Lord, just comfort our hearts knowing that your ways are higher than ours. We don't understand. But Lord, there is meaning. There is purpose in all of our sufferings because there is purpose and meaning in Jesus' sufferings. And our sufferings are designed to conform us to his image, to help us to greater appreciate the massive 
suffering he endured as he bore the full penalty for our sins. And may those thoughts give us hope and give us comfort that as we take up our cross and endure our suffering, that one day we will also wear the crown by His grace. So Lord, encourage us. Help us to find our hope in Jesus Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen.